0: Welcome to The Kindled Podcast. I'm your host, Haley Williams. The heart behind Kindled is to help moms use their gifts for God's glory and their good. We'll chat with real women who are learning how to do this very thing as they navigate motherhood, work, and the grace we need for both. This heart-to-heart is always had over a cup of coffee and usually paired with a business pep talk. We hope you'll find practical advice and the encouragement you need to work well and live more. Hi friends, and welcome to episode six of Kindled. Today I wanna to share a story that's really personal and a little bit scary for me to share. It's not hard because I'm a pretty open book and I've worked through a lot of this, but it is a little a little nerve wracking because it's my story, it's no one else's. I didn't set out to share this story on the podcast. I actually think a lot of what I set out to do on this show has been shifted and realigned by God to serve His purposes and not mine. So when I sat down to actually work on what I thought I needed to do for the day, I really felt a nudging from the Spirit to just tell my story and my testimony of sorts in regards to work. And this is really closely related to why I even felt the desire and need to have a podcast talking about these issues And yeah, so I felt the spirit lead me to just open up this pages document and start typing, start typing my own story and emptying it onto the page and just see what happened. So I'll confess this is not perfect. It's more out of a sense of urgency to be transparent and follow his lead and being real with you about where I come from in regards to this topic of work. So my friends know me as an entrepreneurial type. So um, when I told people that I was starting a a podcast on work and motherhood, I don't think anyone was really surprised. It made sense that I would talk about work because I own two businesses and it seems to follow that I would enjoy discussing it and it's just a part of my life. Um, But the truth is that it goes way, way deeper than that. It's down at the core of who I am and what I have believed for many years that I'm sharing today. So this is the story of my journey with work. It's the story of a girl who believed work could lead to righteousness. And for years, she was unknowingly enslaved to a belief system she never would have admitted that she operated under. It's got sad parts, but it's not a sad story because it is a story in which through ordinary and supernatural means, God writes himself into her story again and again, sweeping her up into the current of his grace and carrying her home to his heart. It is a long and winding tale and it's far from over, but it's one I know will have a glorious ending. It's also one that I hope in being shared and in revealing my own inadequacies and biggest failures will point you to Jesus Christ, my only hope. I think God loves to work in narrative framework. I used to do parliamentary style debate. The rules are a little different than other styles of debate teams, if you ever did that in high school or had that at your school um, with parliamentary style, you get a resolution and have to define it in a short amount of time. And then you argue your case. Uh, you have two people on a team, you argue against the other team. So we would, we study debate at, at our classes and then would learn all the different types of resolutions that we may be given during a tournament. And then every so often we'd have a debate tournament. The way our debate instructor taught us to formulate our argument was by using the structure of introduction body conclusion the acronym for that being IBC and then the winners of the debate tournament were given ribbons and a case of IBC root beer so this part of my story that I'm telling you here today is what I think of as my introduction to my life story I believe I'm now living in the body part of my story, so this bleeds into that, but to give you an idea of where this all is happening in my life, consider this my introduction. So, God has written His story in two ways, through special revelation and natural revelation. The Bible, His revealed word, is the primary means that He has given us to know Him, and that is called special revelation. And then he's also written his story across creation and into the universe by putting laws in place and setting the universe into motion. The way there's order and intention behind every created thing means we can discover knowledge about God by observing nature, philosophy, and reasoning. And this is what theologians call natural revelation. If you've ever read the Bible, you know that God is a storytelling God. He has written his story into scripture this special revelation, and into the physical world, natural revelation. And he has written himself into our story by entering into it as Jesus Christ, the man sent by God, the father to die on the cross for the sins of many. I believe that since we are made in the image of God, and since story is how God communicates to us, our stories have power. Our telling and retelling of the story God is writing with our lives is not reflective of ourselves and our own power, but of His. So if stories have power and power to witness to the truth, then they should be shared. This is why I'm sharing my story with you today. Not so you see more of me, but so you see more of Him. So it all started when I was learning how to write. I had one of those tracing books where You trace the lowercase and uppercase letters of the alphabet on one line, and then beneath them, you would write the letters on your own. I was probably around five. My mom was helping me, and I remember her sitting next to me, showing me how the hook of the lowercase a came off the right side and curved a little. I watched her hand move, drawing the little hook, and I took a swing at it myself. I drew the hook on the wrong side of the a, coming off the left side. My mom gently said, whoops, that's okay. It actually goes on this side. As soon as I saw the error, I lost it. I threw down the pencil and gave up all hope that I would ever correctly be able to write a lowercase a. And I actually remember this happening in my own life. Like this isn't just something she's told me. It is. This picture is really burned into my memory. And I said, no, I can't do it. I'll never be able to do it. It's too hard. I hate it. And she was just, I'm sure, shocked at my outburst, but also knew who I was. It's like um, she knew who her five-year-old was. I would describe myself, even at five, as a perfection-seeking firstborn, highly concerned with my ability to do what was asked of me, unwilling to give myself and often others grace. It was either all or nothing. I would be perfect or I wouldn't do it at all. That's how it had to be. This is one of those formative early memories that writes itself into your subconscious somehow and gives you a framework to understand who you are and what you're all about. Though I was only five and I didn't know it yet, that was the beginning of my lifelong refusal to accept less than excellent from myself. It may seem extreme to say that that's how I was as a kid, but I do think that even though it may not have always showed, this is how I operated on the inside. It was what I told myself and believed about myself what I expected, the measuring stick that I held up to myself in my life, perfection, and perhaps even goodness was attainable if I just tried hard enough. If I could only work a little harder, train harder, longer hours, more practice, fewer mistakes, more focus, more doing, I would get there. I could prove it. I was good enough. I can't tell you how many sports I did during my middle and high school years giving up after only a year or two of practices and games. I was a hard worker, of course, but when I was not the best instantly, I got bored or frustrated or lost interest. The list is long. (laughs) Swim team, basketball, volleyball, track, soccer, cheer. I was a Jill of all trades and a master of none. And I was not really okay with that. Not really at all. I accepted Christ into my heart around the age of eight or nine, and I remember the morning like it was yesterday. I'd been fighting with my brother when my mom took us aside and explained our sin to us, pointing us to Jesus and showing us our only hope was in Him. Wow, I had and still have a really good mom. What a blessing to have a parent who takes the time it's necessary to say the words that my heart needed so desperately to hear. I remember after she talked to us, me just crying and crying, saying over and over, he didn't have to do it for me. He didn't have to do that. I believed then, and I know now that that was a moment of differentiation for me. I had believed in God and Jesus and the Bible before that, but I remember knowing in my heart that that truth was for me. Nevertheless, my tendency still was to sing for my supper. I wanted to be accepted and loved on the basis of my good works. I wanted to be enough on my own. I desperately hoped that I might be able to work hard enough for God that he would tell me, well done, good and faithful servant. Unfortunately, I don't think anybody told me that when he spoke those words in the Bible, he was talking to his perfect son, Jesus. The true heart of the gospel evaded my heart a bit longer. And so I began the long, slow climb up the mountain of seeking righteousness through works and through work. Both of them found a safe and secret home in my heart, deep beneath the surface, beneath the truth that I knew that Christ died for the ungodly. I didn't consider myself one of those because, hey, I was pretty good. Fast forward a few years, I was doing the work, showing up early to school, FCA leader, leading Bible studies, sharing the gospel with wayward high school students, running for student council vice president, becoming salutatorian of my senior class, I was dating a boy all through high school who I thought I'd marry. It was just certain in my heart and mind that we were made for each other. But ever so slowly, we stopped pursuing purity. It went from a kiss in the car after junior prom to having sex outside of marriage. Of course, no one knew. I could keep up my charade of being the good kid. After all, I didn't party or drink. I had never done drugs. I wasn't like that. I was just having sex with the boy I was going to marry, or so I thought. It hurts my heart to go back to the darkness of those years of high school into college when I continued to keep up appearances of being shiny and clean and okay on the outside. All the while, I was plagued and tormented by the sin I knew I was hiding, the guilt and filthiness I felt in lying to a God who knew the truth and to my parents and everyone else who didn't. Thankfully, that relationship ended abruptly sophomore year of college, and that boy broke up with me. My heart was broken, shattered into a million pieces. I felt unloved, unworthy, and discarded. I had set myself up for an absolute train wreck by giving my heart away before it was mine to give, and I felt the full effect of that betrayal of God's commands. I felt the pain associated with my sin. In the months following that breakup, I turned to partying. I had never gone there, but now seemed as good a time as any to give up the good girl routine and just have some fun for once. I had been in a serious relationship since I was basically a freshman in high school. Didn't I deserve to let loose? Everyone else was, and I didn't see why I should be excluded any longer. I traveled with a friend to a college a few hours away where I had met someone who I knew would offer us a good time. Well, there was a lot of cheap beer involved, but it was not a very good time. Maybe at the time I was trying to convince myself that this was fun, that this was what I had been missing. But this only drove me further from God in the acceptance I so desperately was seeking. I wanted to be loved, told I was enough, told I was wanted and beautiful, desired and lovely, worth something to anyone. And I was willing to again sacrifice my standards and how I was raised in the hopes someone would speak those words to me. It was the grace of God in my life during that short stint that God made sure no one spoke those words to me. In fact, quite the opposite. I felt worse, more unloved, more of a failure, and much more broken. I gave myself again to someone I hoped would speak the words my heart longed to hear. And again I was left empty-handed and empty-hearted. Left again to sit in my aloneness and to cry out for forgiveness and help from the God I figured had long since given up hope on me. What a disgrace I had become— I remember thinking I was just disgusting, an an embarrassment of a Christian. Here I was, this girl with a glittering reputation and promising future, the firstborn of a family who had started a private school, who was always the hub and center of their kids' friends and activities, family vacations, holidays, everything was all how it should be on the outside. Yet I felt so below that reputation. I shamed myself into an even darker place. I told myself I actually deserved to be distant from God, and this was what my actions bought for me. Of course, at the time, I had only half the story right. My actions had purchased distance and isolation from God for me, but I was missing the hope. I was divorced from the message of the gospel. I believed it, but wasn't living in freedom. I was living in chains to my sin, held down and captive by the darkness that filled my heart and mind as a result of how I was choosing to live. Fast forward a few more months, and I decided to get involved again with a local church. Perhaps from a place of wanting to prove to God I could follow the rules and be good enough again, but nonetheless, I began going and sitting under the word of God. I know it was spoken over me every week so many times, and I know I understood with my mind, but I don't think that it had yet taken root in my heart. Just as I finally began to be okay with my status as a single girl, one I was unfamiliar with due to my long relationship status throughout high school and college, I met a new boy. This one was different. He loved Jesus and had a real relationship with him. I could tell he was funny and cute in the life of the party. The room's energy level would just go up when he walked in. Three days after we met, we found ourselves watching the office in his tiny bedroom, which was actually technically a closet because it had no window. We began holding hands while watching the office, and I felt a rush of anxiety and guilt and fear flood in. Not again. You can't do this. No more gray area in your life, Haley. I told the boy how I felt and instructed that if we were to be holding hands, it had to be on official terms. I felt this was the only way to protect my heart from getting swept up into another pursuit for acceptance. I felt if someone had to say, you're my girlfriend, that that meant I could rest easy in that title enough not to need more. Well, I was wrong. But at the time, in my delicate and fragile state, it made sense to me. So I gave him the ultimatum and he said, well, can I date you please? Okay, then. Yeah. We went back to holding hands and watching the office and my heart swelled with warmth and excitement. I was finally feeling wanted again. This silly beginning of the story is actually how I met my husband and how we started dating in three days after we met. And I wish I could say we were perfect and holy and pure throughout all our four years of dating, but that would be a lie. We stumbled and slipped up many times both of us had sexual impurity in our past. The devil had already found a foothold and he weaseled his way into that part of our relationship plenty of times. But ultimately, and in the midst of our shortcomings, we knew we were sinning. We begged God for help. We told friends to keep us accountable. We were seeking the Lord. For the first time in my life, I had a partner on my side fighting for me instead of for himself. A man who was after God's heart like David, but still screwing up all the time we experienced God's grace in our relationship as He did pursue our hearts for Himself. And through a breakup about a year and a half into our relationship, He brought both of us to a much better place where we were more focused on Him than on our relationship and ourselves. So fast forward a few years, I married this boy. We started a life together. We moved Back to the Midwest where I was from, though we had been living in D.C. since I had graduated college for about a year, we settled into life near my family and closer to his in Colorado and things were great. One year into our marriage, I discovered that my parents' own marriage was on the rocks and might ultimately end in divorce. Though I won't go into details here because they are not mine to share, I felt my entire universe around me begin to melt away. It was as if this world I was living in where I had the perfect family and heritage and reputation had been hit with a hammer and the glass of my life shattered into a million little splinters and began to fall away from the walls. In the months that followed, I worked hard to hold my reality together. Though it felt as though I was on a ship tossing about in a wild and raging storm, I sought to hold my four younger siblings up and together, even fought to keep my parents together as though we had any control over that. I fought to maintain my identity in the midst of a torrential downpour that threatened to wash away any semblance of who I had thought I was or who I had been. In the wake of the divorce, I found myself with a budding bridal business, one that I had started nearly accidentally by listing a few items on Etsy. It was starting to take off, and I was seeing that the more oil I poured onto the fire, the bigger it burned. I saw an opportunity to rebuild for myself a new identity, a new self. To build security, a new name, and a new reputation outside my family's or who people thought I was, I poured myself into my work. Though I was working full-time for my dad's company, I came home at night and worked late into the nights, till 12.30, sometimes 2 a.m., making and making, building and building, until my fingers were bleeding and my eyes were burning. It was in that season of feeling somewhat let down by my parents that I found I believed I would not let myself down. I would work until the job was done and done right. I would toil and labor and cry to my husband how tired and overworked I was, all the while resisting anyone who would threaten to take it from me. Work was becoming my new identity. In the wake of the divorce, I worked to find peace, to find identity. I was putting a new stake in the ground, one that would say something about who I was as an individual one that had nothing to do with them or my family, but that could be solely based on me. I would rise or fall on the back of my hard work. Then I could finally prove to myself and everyone else that I was worthy. I was good. Now, before I go any further, hear me very clearly. All of that was a lie. I didn't have to respond that way. It wasn't anybody's fault. Nobody made me. I was not obligated to respond by turning to myself and my diligence or my efforts or my work, but this is just how my sin reared its ugly head, and this is what it looked like for me to resist God's direction and guidance over my life, and this is the result of what submitting to self looks like for me. This is like my default Without the help of the Holy Spirit and Christ changing me, this is what I do. And without His supernatural help and just intervening in my life to change me and make me something new, I have no hope but to respond this way. So, I think we each have a tendency towards a response to fear or anxiety or lack of control over our life. There's this tendency towards a certain sin pattern, perhaps, and for me, it was working and not just simply working for the glory of God but I think really working for the glory of me. This was my default sin of choice, so to speak. Um and it was really a heart posture. It wasn't anything on the outside that it looked like I was really doing wrong. Nobody would have guessed this other than being like, "Wow, you're work- working really hard and are you sure like this is healthy? You know, shouldn't you be sleeping? Like, oh my gosh, do you have to do this?" And um I did. I mean, I didn't have to, but I chose to. I was choosing it. And, you know, so maybe for you, it's uh, it's controlling your eating or drinking or gluttony or slothfulness or apathy. It's basically what is taking the place of what only Christ can fill. What are you trying to fill yourself up with that only He can fill? And when you do that, it's like you have holes in the bottom of your cup. And no matter how much you pour in, it keeps empty. You keep coming up empty and realizing that you are trying to pour from an empty cup and you don't know, you know, it doesn't make sense because you're working so hard and it just, it isn't adding up. So while I felt really proud of myself and really, you know, like I'm doing a good job, I'm building this business that it's going to provide for me later when I want to stay home with my kids and it's going to create this this beautiful life for my family. And just felt like all, I was doing all the right things, but I was doing them out of the wrong heart, and that was really the problem. But we serve a God who loves us enough not to leave us where we're at. So you know that this isn't the end of the story, and you know that it's about to take a turn in some direction. Soon, a baby came along, a longed-for and delighted-in daughter Isla. She was the joy of my heart. I poured myself into this newfound role. I continued to work hard and juggle being a new mom with owning a budding business and found that to be a challenge, as most first-time mothers do, but I continued to be able to hold it all together for the most part. I had a very involved family with lots of siblings who helped babysit and a mom and dad and grandparents just who were so involved and amazing. I continued to be able to wing it, building a business and a family, no problem. In the spring of 2015, I decided to take my bridal business to New York Bridal Market to try and grow by getting into stores all over the country. And so I worked really hard all summer with Isla being, you know, under a year old and just really poured myself into getting appointments scheduled, getting my line out there, finishing the collection, producing a lookbook and a line sheet and all the things that I had researched and studied so hard to know that I needed to have. And so it got to the fall and about two weeks before bridal market was about to begin, two weeks before our flight, I found out that I was pregnant with baby number two. So as you can imagine, life only got more full and busy and exhausting from there. But I was like, all right, I'm going to do this thing. I will make it happen. I'll grow my business, we'll grow our family, I'll maintain an ounce of sanity, and everything will be fine. Now, I hope you can understand and appreciate how many details I'm leaving out in this bird's eye view of my life. Life is never as simple or straightforward as we make it sound. And I don't for a minute want to give the impression that I was totally clear or confident about any one path at any given time. There was lots of doubts and prayers and hopes and a lot of fear wrapped up into any step that I took as there always is in life. But my hope is that I'm just painting a picture of why work became so foundational to my identity. The series of events that happened in my life and then the choices and steps that I took as a result of those were building me into this person that I was becoming. One wrapped up in achievement, pursuit, proving, gains, success, approval. Is it starting to become clear? And again, none of this was necessarily visible on the outside. I was not breaking under the weight yet or showing any signs of cracking. The red lights weren't flashing saying caution, but nonetheless, beneath the surface of my heart, stress and pressure, mostly self-induced, were at an all-time high. Well, baby number two made her entrance, and with that, God began to tear down walls. All the walls I had built around myself and the identity that I had formed for myself in this productivity and this success, my achievements, all of that became became so much harder to attain when one kid might be napping, but the other would be awake and needy to be held. Life totally became more joy-filled, but it also became more exhausting, and work hours and productivity became more scarce. This identity I had been building around what I could produce and what I had to show for all this work began being ripped out of my tightly gripped fingers one by one. And again, looking back to even just 20 months ago when she was born, the second baby, Jules, birthed only 19 months after my first. So I basically had two babies. Was God's greatest grace to me yet. You know that saying that God won't give you more than you can handle? Well, I'm calling bull on that because he definitely gave me more than I could handle. And in that spot, I found myself for the first time ever turning from my work and turning to Jesus for hope. I didn't have any choices. I couldn't manage it all. I couldn't keep myself together. I couldn't hold my universe in place. Everything felt like it was spinning out of control, and I would just have to fall to my knees and beg for help. And I am happy to say that I haven't stopped since. Now, you may be thinking, wow, this story feels really fresh, and you're not all that far out of the woods in terms of finding so much identity and hope and work. To which I would reply, you are exactly right. You see, I have found that even though we sometimes take years and years to come to Him with the burdens that we've been struggling and failing to carry, when we submit our wills to His and ask for help, He doesn't need years and years to make a change in us or to show us a better way. An ounce of him covers an ocean of lesser loves. He doesn't tarry with relief or the presence of his spirit that we desperately need. He burgeons our hope and upholds our lives in his good, good hands. He needs but a moment of submission and belief and faith to transform us, to remove the weight we've treated more like a secret lover than a burden that will destroy us. In the very same moment that we say, yes, Lord, come Lord Jesus, there He is. You don't even have to run back to Him because I have found He is right there. When I turn around for myself and stop staring at the mirror and worshiping what I see, looking for hope in everything that I create, I turn around and find myself staring at Jesus. He didn't wander away from me the way I wandered from Him. He was with me and stayed by my side the entire time so that at any point that I turned to him and looked for his hand to grab and looked for his shoulder to pull myself up on, he was there. I have looked for satisfaction and identity in things that God explicitly said were evil and not good for me. And I have looked for it in things he explicitly created and said were good. And I have found that neither is good enough. I will no longer settle for living a life in pursuit of that which is not eternal and lasting and true and bigger than me, that which will die with my body or my property and will ultimately be forgotten about when my legacy on this earth has run its course and no one alive remembers my name. I have worshipped the creation. I have made secondary things primary things, and I have found none of it satisfies like he does. None of it. As he lifts up my head, I find rest. I find acceptance and hope and intimacy and love and the belonging that I was searching for all along. All this time, I had thought I might find it in relationship or family or work or proving I was enough. And I can say after more than 10 years of living burdened and in chains to my performance, he has loosed them and I am free. It doesn't mean that it's never hard for me to remember the truth, though. There are moments when that familiar old friend of anxiety and self-reliance rear their ugly heads, and the feeling is familiar. I know when it's happening, but his spirit is never far, and the encouraging and true words of the Bible are near to me. In the word itself, in the encouragement from my husband, friends, community, people I can text or call on a moment's notice and ask for prayer, and I think that the most real way of saying it is I am free and being freed. It's become kind of a popular saying to drop, but it's the already and the not yet. I'm free for eternity, but I'm also being sanctified here in this earth, even in this fallen body and world. And there is no easy way through. It is the hard path. It's the narrow way. But we have a friend who is closer than a brother, and he's with us through all of it. These stories don't wrap up in 30 minutes like a sitcom. They don't, mine doesn't have a neat little bow to tie it off with because I am still living it. I'm still in the trenches doing the hard work, not of proving myself, but of submitting my will and my identity to God's loving care, knowing that what he has said about me is so much greater and more weighty than anything the world can say about me. I'm laying down my weapons to pursue peace and thanksgiving for everything He's given me. I don't have to fight anymore. His grace is enough for me because now He carries me. My hopes, my fears, my longings, my gifts, and passions, I am no longer being held together by my efforts and striving. I'm being held together by a love greater than I thought possible and a hope brighter than my eyes can handle. So friends, I hope in this story that you don't see me, but that you see my Savior I hope you see the reason for the hope that I have. And his name is Jesus. With him comes freedom. And I know it's hard to believe, but it's free, even for the girl who wants to be loved and accepted on the basis of her own merit. And in fact, especially for her. It is hard to imagine how such a freedom can be ours at no cost to us, but that is the beauty of the gospel. That's the good and the absolute best news. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, which is my husband's favorite of his. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. And I love that because he offers it all to us. He offers us that which we most long to have, but at a price we didn't think possible, free. And I think for the rest of my life, I'll be learning the depth of the riches of that truth. Well, that's all I have for today. That was a, a heavy one, but I really feel like it is essential for me to be transparent about where my story has been and where it's going. And I don't feel like I can sit behind a microphone and ask other women to tell me about their experiences and stories surrounding work and motherhood and the intersection of those two things without really explaining mine. And I feel like this has all just kind of been a little bit out of order with this one coming several episodes into the podcast, but... This is kind of a work of the Holy Spirit in my heart at the same time of what He is doing and calling me to and my continual submission to that. And so I would just ask that you continue to pray for me and pray that God would keep revealing to me um, what I need to see in myself. And um, I will be praying for you too, the very same thing. Can I ask you guys a favor? If you're liking this show, can you go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review? It shows iTunes that people are enjoying it. So they show it to more people and more moms and women can be encouraged. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks for hanging in there for my story. I hope it was an encouragement to you. I can't wait to talk to you next Monday because I will be talking with Haley Unruh, wife of Sam Unruh, the owner of Unruh Furniture here in Kansas City. Haley and I had such a fun conversation and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. In fact, I was so excited, I really wanted to air it today, but I did a little poll over on Instagram and you guys voted for my testimony. So, that aired first, but be sure and come back here Monday, next Monday, to listen to my interview with Haley Unruh. And that conversation with Haley is gonna kick off a mini-series that I'm doing in March called Real Mom March, where I'm gonna talk with real moms, which I know these are all real moms, but by that I mean people that I'm friends with, moms that I know of all ages and backgrounds and current situations in terms of what work looks like for them and their families. So that's what you have to look forward to for next month. And depending on how ambitious I am, I may throw in a couple extras. Don't hold me to that, but I have a lot of people that I plan to talk to in the next couple weeks. So look forward to Real Mom March next week. And by the way, if you're not following us on Instagram, be sure and do that at Kindled Podcast. I share just encouragement throughout the week, as well as some of my favorite quotes from our guests and reminders of when new episodes are airing. And I also ask questions, ask for feedback and take polls on, for instance, what episodes you want to hear next. So join the conversation over there. And be sure and subscribe on iTunes so that you automatically get new episodes when they come out. Thanks so much. Have a good week.